Tale Two of the Story of King Arthur. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. The Story of King Arthur in Twelve Tales by Winona Caroline Martin. Tale Two How Arthur Won His Kingdom. For many a petty king ere Arthur came ruled in this isle, and ever waging war each upon other wasted all the land. And still from time to time the heathen hosts swarmed over seas and harried what was left. And so there grew great tracts of wilderness, wherein the beast was ever more and more, but man was less and less, till Arthur came. Tennyson's Coming of Arthur now, my lords, Vertigan the usurper is dead, and you must turn your attention to Heingist with his Saxon hordes, for between his people and yours shall be the struggle for the possession of this fair land of Britain. It was Merlin who spoke, and he stood in the throne room in the old castle of Constantine before Pendragon and Uther, the exiled princes, who had at last come into their own again. They looked at the child with curiosity, mingled with awe, and presently Pendragon said, you're a wonderful boy, Merlin, for by your counsel you have helped us to overthrow Vortigern. Now tell us, if you can, who shall be victorious in the struggle between Britain and Saxon? Come to the window, Merlin replied, and I will show you a strange sight. Then, followed by the young princes, he crossed the hall, drew aside the heavy hangings of scarlet samite that shut out the cool night air, and, having done so, pointed to the starlit sky. See, said he, stepping back, so as not to obstruct the view. The princes looked, and beheld a strange sight indeed, for in the heavens there blazed a comet of enormous size, whose dragon-shaped tail was like a cloud of fire, from the mouth of which shot forth two long rays, one stretching away over the sunny land of France, the other ending in seven smaller rays over the Irish sea. "'Tell us, Merlin, what do these things mean?' they asked. Here then the interpretation, replied Merlin. On Salisbury Plain there shall be a great battle fought, and the outcome is still uncertain. If you ask my aid, however, the British arms shall be victorious. Nevertheless, one of you, which one I may not tell, shall be slain, but the other shall become king of Britain. Then shall he that is king take his brother's name and add it to his own, that the dead man's memory may not perish from the earth. Furthermore, he shall raise over his lost brother's grave a monument that shall stand for ever. The comet signifies the one who shall survive, and the rays over France and Ireland show that he shall have a son mightier than himself who shall hold sway over the lands that the rays cover. The name of that son shall be called Arthur, and he shall drive the heathen from the realm. Then, Merlin, you will help us in this battle? asked both brothers together. I will help you, replied Merlin on one condition. What is that? they inquired. That whichever one of you comes through victorious shall give me his first son on the day of his birth, for I must bring him up if he is to be fitted for his great part in life. Then, because the battle seemed to them a thing so terribly near and the birth of a son a thing so far in the future, they were willing enough to agree. Promise, said Merlin, turning first to Pendragon. I promise, said the young man gravely. "'Promise,' repeated the boy to Uther, and like his brother, Uther answered, "'I promise.' "'Then I will give you my aid,' swore Merlin, and he kept his word, 
for on the day of that terrible battle the Saxon were driven from the field with great slaughter. But when the Britons returned from the pursuit to seek their wounded, they found Pendragon dead upon the plain with all his wounds in front. He died as he lived, like a brave soldier, said Uther. And now, Merlin, tell me how I may keep my promise to raise to his memory a monument that shall stand forever. Forever is a long time. Nevertheless, counseled Merlin, send to Ireland for the giant's dance. And what may the giant's dance be? inquired Uther. A great circle of stones, replied Merlin, that the giants brought from Africa many years ago. Send for these stones, then you will have a monument that shall stand to the end of time. So Uther sent great ships to Ireland, and with Merlin's aid secured the magic stones, and had them set up on Salisbury Plain in a great circle which the people called ever after Stonehenge. And there those same stones stand, or lie, to this very day. After that Uther caused two great golden dragons to be made in the likeness of the beast he had seen in the tail of the comet. One of these he gave to the cathedral at Winchester, and the other he carried before him on his standard into all his battles. Then he added his brother's name to his own, so that he was known ever after as Uther Pendragon, the dragon's head. So he reigned in Britain in place of Vortigern the usurper, and fought against the Saxon, whom Vortigern had brought to the land, all the days of his life. Now it happened, when he had been king some years, that there came a time of great rejoicing in the realm, for at dusk on the day of the Feast of Pentecost the old bell in Castle Tower rang out a merry peal, announcing to the people far and wide that a son had been born to King Uther Pendragon and his beautiful Queen Igerna. So there was joy in the palace and in all the country round, but Uther alone did not rejoice, for he remembered his promise to Merlin. When the shades of night had fallen, therefore, he took his tiny baby boy in his arms, held him for a moment so that Queen Igerna might press her white lips against his little cheek. Then he himself dressed the child in rich cloth of gold as befitted a king's son, and, having sworn them to secrecy, gave him to two brave knights and two fair ladies of the court, with instructions to ask no questions, but deliver him to the care of an old man whom they would find waiting at the postern gate. The knights and ladies were greatly astonished at this seemingly unreasonable command. Nevertheless, they dared not disobey the king, so they did as they were told, and sorrowfully stood at the gate as the strange old man disappeared with the royal child into the shadows of the night. Long afterwards, however, when their lips were unsealed, they told strange tales of a light that had shone about the baby's head just before he was swallowed up in the darkness, and of fairy faces that had bent tenderly over his helpless form. So the longed-for heir was carried away on the very night of his birth from his father's palace by Merlin. For the old man was he in his favorite disguise, and none knew, not even King Uther and Queen Agurna, what had become of him. The people, however, believed that he was dead. Two years passed by, during which time Uther fought many brave battles against the Saxon, but at last there came a day when he was brought home ill of a fatal malady and there was great lamentation throughout the realm, because he was leaving no heir to succeed him. For three days he had lain speechless, and at last his ministers called for Merlin and begged his help. "'The king is so ill,' said they, "'that he cannot make it known whom he will have to reign in his stead when he is gone. And you know what that means, Merlin. All the mighty barons will struggle for the possession of the crown, and the land will be wasted through their strife. Tell us, O man of wisdom, what must we do?' 
Call these same mighty barons together, said Merlin, and before them all I will make him speak. He vanished, but his command was obeyed. And when the great lords of the realm had gathered silently in the chamber of their dying monarch, Merlin suddenly reappeared in their midst. Sir King, said he, as you are about to depart from your people, tell them that all may hear who shall reign in Britain when you are gone. Slowly, the large eyes of Uther Pendragon opened, and he gazed first at Merlin, then at his barons, many of whom were but waiting, as he knew well enough, until the breath had left his body before falling upon each other in a wild and lawless struggle for the crown. Then his tongue was loosed, and speaking clearly and distinctly, that none might fail to understand, he said, My own son Arthur shall reign in Britain after me. He shall be a greater and nobler king than I have been, and he shall drive the Saxon from the land. The king's mind wanders, said the people, but Uther did not hear them, for, having spoken, he turned his face to the wall and died. And when they looked about for Merlin, strange to say, he too had disappeared. Then followed the saddest years that the country of Britain had ever known. There was no longer any law in the land, for each mighty baron was little more than a robber to steal from those of his own rank, and guarding the interests of the poor peasants depended upon him as the wolf guards the flock. Furthermore, each gathered his forces together and tried by the power of his might which was the only right then respected, to seize the crown. So the land became desolate. The dreaded Saxon made his raids unmolested. The grain fields were trampled, houses were burned, and strong men were thrown into prison for debt while their wives and children starved. Thus fifteen years passed away, and the people in their misery cried, Woe to the fair land of Britain! Oh, that Uther had left us a son, whose strong arm would have kept order in the realm. Yet all the time Merlin kept himself hidden away, so that none had seen him since the hour of the king's death. There came at last a winter when the snow fell early and lay deep upon the ground, and gray famine stalked abroad throughout the countryside. Then Bryce, the good Archbishop of Canterbury, burdened with the misery of his people, withdrew himself for a season of fasting and prayer. One morning, as he was bringing a long night watch to a close, he turned and saw standing before him in the dim light an old man with a flowing white beard. "'Merlin, Merlin, at last!' he cried in joy. "'Where have you kept yourself these fifteen long years while the land of Uther has been desolate?' "'That I may not tell you,' replied Merlin, and the sound of his voice gladdened the heart of the holy man. "'That I may not tell you, and you must not ask.' but now I am here, and I am come to help you in your great need. Then tell me, said the archbishop, where I may find a man with a hand firm enough to rule over these robber barons, yet with a heart of mercy that will cause him to deal justly with rich and poor alike. Such a man there surely is, and Merlin looked wiser than ever, but you must find him for yourself, otherwise he would not be received. Alas, I have sought him in vain these fifteen years, replied the good man sadly, if he can be found, give us your aid, Merlin, and do not deceive me, for my people are perishing. Listen well to my advice, then, warned Merlin. Call together the lords of the realm and bid them come to London to keep the Christmas feast, and at that time shall a miracle be wrought to show who is the rightful king. Then the messengers rode forth, north and south and east and west, so that the great men were gathered together on Christmas Eve that they might spend the holy night confessing their sins, before hearing mass at break of day. And when all was over, 
and the pale streaks of dawn were appearing in the wintry sky, a strange sight met their eyes. In the churchyard, against the high altar, stood a great stone, four feet square. Upon the stone was set an anvil of steel one foot high, and into the anvil was thrust a sword of curious workmanship upon whose bejeweled hilt were engraved these words. Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise king born of all England. At that sight a thrill of joy shot through the heart of every man present. Each robber baron thought to himself, Now is my chance to show that I am best fitted to wield the scepter of Uther Pendragon. But the lips of the good archbishop moved in a prayer of thankfulness. Praise God the miracle, he murmured reverently. Then, in a clear, ringing voice, he gave the command, Arrange yourselves, my lords, in the order of your rank, tributary king, duke, earl, count, baron, and simple knight. Then, beginning at the highest, let each one come forward to try this adventure of the sword. So they came, those mighty men of a hundred battles, Uther's warriors, tested and tried, and each in turn tugged with all his might upon the jeweled hilt of the sword, but never did it stir by a hair's breadth for the mightiest of them. And when the most lowly knight had proved himself as powerless as the most haughty tributary king, the archbishop turned to the amazed company, saying, My lords, I see that this is a question of purity of heart as well as of strength of muscle, and I fear the best knight of the realm is not, after all, among us today. Therefore, there must be another trial. I will then appoint twelfth day for this second test. See to it that the news is spread abroad, so that every gentleman of arms of whatever rank shall be present without fail. Now it was the custom of those times, whenever knights were gathered together in large numbers, to hold tournaments, which were in reality sham battles. So it happened that while the lords remained in London awaiting the second trial of the sword, they decided to amuse themselves in true knightly fashion by holding such a tournament on New Year's Day in the fields outside the town. And truly a great sight it was, that gathering of gentlemen of arms, with their glittering armor, flashing swords, streaming banners, and prancing horses, well worth the enthusiasm of the great crowd of commoners that had gathered to see them. A great sight indeed, and not one that either noble or commoner would willingly miss. All along the king's highway, therefore, that first crisp winter's morning of the new year rode one of the few true-hearted knights still left in Britain, Sir Ector the Upright, accompanied by his newly knighted son, Sir Kay, and with them, because he had begged to be permitted to see the tourney, rode a younger son, Arthur, a lad of seventeen, who acted as his brother's squire. This fair-haired, blue-eyed boy watched eagerly the gathering of the knights, and felt his heart thrill within him at the thought that some day, if he performed his present humble duties as well as lay in his power, he too might hope to receive the order of knighthood. As the three neared the lists, Sir Kay suddenly made a distressing discovery, he had left his sword at home. Turning quickly to Arthur, therefore, and speaking none too gently, as is the way at times with big brothers, he said, Ride back, boy, and get my sword, and see to it that you hurry, too, so that I need not miss any of the jousts. Now Arthur was longing to see all that there was to be seen. Moreover, like the spirited boy he was, he resented his brother's tone of command. Then he remembered that only a good squire could ever hope to become a worthy knight, so he answered meekly enough, Certainly I will go, Kay and away he went without a murmur. When he reached his home, however, what was his distress to find the drawbridge raised, and every door and window barred and bolted, for the servants, taking advantage of their master's absence, had deserted their posts, and gone to mingle with the crowd at the tournament. 
alas i cannot cross the moat and i could not break in if i did he cried in dismay so he turned and rode back to london sad because he must fail in even so humble a quest now it happened that this way lay past the churchyard and it also happened that because of his youth and insignificance no one had thought it worth while to tell him about the mystic sword in the anvil when he rode past therefore he saw an unused weapon it occurred to him that it would do no harm to borrow it for the day that his brother need not be without a sword so he slipped from his horse stepped inside the enclosure and looked about for someone whose permission he might ask but the church was deserted as his own castle had been at last seeing no other way out of the difficulty he lightly took the sword by the hilt and never stopping to read the words engraved upon it drew it forth from the anvil as easily as he might have drawn the play-sword of his childhood long since discarded from its tiny scabbard then gladly he spurred his horse that he might the sooner deliver the weapon into his brother's hand but when sir kay saw that bejeweled hilt a dull red flush suffused his cheek and a strange sparkle leapt into his eyes where did you get this arthur he whispered eagerly drawing the boy aside that none might overhear the conversation in the churchyard replied arthur innocently i will take it back as soon as you have finished with it kay so there is no harm done is there there is no harm done yet if you were not seen and can keep silent said kay mysteriously hush don't speak of it to any one then he rode away leaving his young brother awed and full of fear lest he had done some wicked deed kay however lost no time in seeking his father before whom he triumphantly displayed the weapon crying see father i your son have drawn the sword from the anvil therefore i am the rightful king of britain but the good sir ector after looking first at the sword and then at kay laid his hand on the young man's shoulder and said gravely kay kay tell me the truth by the honor of your knighthood how came you by that sword then kay whose eyes could not meet his father's hung his head in shame and answered my brother arthur brought it to me send the boy here commanded sir rector and when arthur stood before him he asked more gravely than ever arthur how did you come by this sword and the lad though now quite convinced that he had unwittingly done some great wrong looked up into his father's face and answered bravely i drew it from the anvil that stands on the stone in the churchyard if it was not right father i am sorry arthur said sir ector and now his voice was stern tell me the truth as you hope one day to become a brave and honorable knight where did you find this sword again arthur looked up into his father's face repeating his former words then sir ector could doubt no longer come with me to the good archbishop said he that we may tell him the whole story when the archbishop had heard all he said gravely put the sword back in the anvil my boy and let it remain there until twelfth day if you can pull it out then before all the lords of the realm after they have tried for the second time and failed then young as you are we shall know that our prayers have been answered and that god himself has given us a king so on twelfth day the nobles were again assembled and when mass had been said the trial began for a second time but just as before tributary king duke earl count baron and simple knight each came forward in his turn and tugged and pulled with all his might in vain then when the last knight had turned away defeated the voice of the archbishop was heard above the tumult stay yet a while my lords said he there is still another to make the trial they halted 
and to the scornful amazement of all, out from an obscure corner stepped a lad in the simple dress of a squire. Modestly, with flushed cheeks and lowered eyelids, he passed through their midst, straight up to the great stone, and, with no effort, using but one hand, drew the glittering sword from its firm seat in the anvil. For a moment a deep hush fell upon the company. Then there began to be heard an angry murmur, like the rumble of a fast-approaching storm. "'Who is this boy?' one knight was asking another. "'The son of Sir Ector, in whose veins there runs no noble blood,' came the answer from one or two. "'Away with him, then! Away with him!' they all cried together. "'Miracle or no miracle, we will not have this beardless boy to reign over us!' The good archbishop, with the exception of Sir Ector, was the only one that had been truly glad. But now, as he looked down upon that sea of angry faces, the words that were about to proclaim Arthur King died on his lips, for he feared lest these men should fall upon the child and take his life. Suddenly, invisible to all others, Merlin stood once again at the holy man's side. "'Tell them,' said he, "'to return to their homes, and together again on Candlemas Day for a third trial.' so the angry multitude was safely dispersed. But on Candlemas Day the same scene was reenacted, and so again at Easter, but still the lords would not submit. Then Merlin said to the holy man, Tell them that there will be one last and final test at the Feast of Pentecost. Then at that time they must bring together all their mighty men, all the flower of their knighthood, and that he that draws the sword on that day is without further question King of Britain. So at that Feast of Pentecost, more than fifteen years after the death of Uther Pendragon, the mighty men of the realm were once again gathered together in old London town. Then, for the fifth time, with might and main, they made the trial of the sword, without success. But when, for the fourth time, before them all, the boy Arthur had lightly drawn it from the anvil, Merlin appeared to the whole company, standing at the lad's side. "'My lords of Britain,' said he, "'you have sought to reject this boy because you thought him not of royal blood.' Sir Ector, tell us, is he your son? Then, to the amazement of all, Sir Ector the upright, whose words none could doubt, answered simply, He is not, though I have loved and cherished him as my own since the day you brought him to me, Merlin, a baby but a few hours old. Now hear the truth, continued Merlin. Your king, Uther Pendragon, was not wandering in his mind when he spoke those words on his deathbed. Eighteen years ago today there was a born to King Uther and his queen, the beautiful Agerna, a son. That child, that he might be kept safe during the helpless years of his infancy, and that he might be made fit to rule in justice and in mercy over this troubled land, was delivered to me at the postern gate. I took him to Sir Ector, the most upright knight among you, with strict instructions that he be kept in ignorance of his birth. Then Merlin, taking the boy's hand, led him forth where he might be seen not only by the nobles, but also by the crowd of commoners that had gathered to see the outcome, and with a loud voice he cried, "'People of Britain, behold your king! Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon, the child of prophecy, he that shall restore peace and drive the heathen from the realm!' Then, like a deep roar from a thousand throats, came the glad response, "'Long live Arthur!' Long live the king! End of tale two.